The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au I think I mentioned to you before, uh, John Newton, who wrote some 500 hymns for his church because most of them were illiterate farmers. They couldn't read. So they'd come into church and he'd preach a sermon. They'd teach them a song and would have all the theology of his sermon. And they'd go out singing the song and remember the sermon. I thought, that's brilliant. Take your, uh, take your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to uh, look at the whole issue of what we believe about man's will and how God saves men. We looked in weeks gone by how God created all men in the image of God, meaning that we're both like God and we're representing God. It means that we are like God morally, we are like God spiritually, we are like God mentally, having the ability to reason and formulate thoughts and logic and so on. We're also like God relationally. We're able to have relationships between us and other humans and also able to have relationship with God. And we represent God in his likeness. We've got a purpose. Every single person was born and created with one basic purpose, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Or if you use John Piper's way of putting it, to glorify God by enjoying him forever. I think that's uh, very well said as well. We believe that Satan tempted Eve through the serpent, so they both willfully transgressed the law, they sinned, and we know that sin is lawlessness or rebellion. We know the Bible describes sin as transgression, meaning to cross the boundary, cross the mark. We know that sin is also iniquity, a failure to meet a standard. And we believe that Adam and Eve, by sin and disobedience to God, fell from original righteousness and fellowship with God and became dead in sin, and defiled in all their faculties of soul and body. We believe that by God's design, the guilt of sin and a corrupted nature was given and applied to Adam and all his descendants because, as the Bible says, Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam's sin had an effect on all of us. We are all counted guilty before God because of Adam's sin. We all have a sinful nature. Uh, I discovered this verse in doing this study in Psalm 58, verse 3. The Bible says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Meaning what? Meaning that there is a sinful nation in nature in play the moment we are conceived and it starts and the moment we're born, we're acting against God and, and acting wickedly. We believe all men are uh, conceived in sin. They're all men are destined to face God's wrath. All mankind are slaves to sin and subject to death. And all mankind are subject to all the other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. We believe that this corrupted nature will remain throughout life. So we'll carry that with us all through life, even over, even in those who have been regenerated. We see that in our own selves. The war of that new nature, that new life in Christ, war against the old nature. Like I told you before, I used to frustrate me that that happened, thinking I was the only one. And then I one day read Romans 7 and discovered that, oh, 
Paul's just like me. He struggles with the very same thing I do. The old nature and the new nature are warring against each other. Uh, we believe. I mentioned that already, the corrupted nature. Let's take your Bibles now. We're going to read from Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19 all the way down to Ephesians 2 and verse 10. And uh, Paul is praying for the Ephesians, and this is what he says. He's praying that they may know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then chapter 2, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, According, sorry, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray quick. Loving Father, we come again this evening to consider something of what we believe as believers in you what we believe about the way in which you have saved us, what, you, what we believe about the call of God that called us from death to life. And Father, we ask you this evening as we would study the word of God and open the scriptures together that your spirit would teach us and lead us into the truth. And we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I saw two figures go running by right before I started praying. I think I know what they were doing, throwing something at the wall. So don't worry about it. Uh, five great statements from Ephesians 2 that we can work as a framework to hang everything else on. If you notice, he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, we were dead in sins and trespasses. That's the first great statement. The second one is this. We were by nature children of wrath in verse 3. And then if you look at verses 4 and 5, you're going to see, and you should have in your Bible, but God, and then a comma, and a long stretch, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, another comma, made us alive. So the subject of the sentence is the first two words, but God, and the action is made us alive. So that great statement there is God made us alive in Christ Jesus. We see that a little bit later. And then the fourth one is, by grace we have been saved. And that's verse 8. And the last one, the fifth one, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus 
in verse number 10. And what I want to do this evening is unpack this idea of man and the sin nature and his will and how God calls us to salvation. What we believe about God's effectual or powerful call that brings man from death to life. So the first statement is this, we are dead in sins and trespasses. And the word that's used there is the word nakrus, and it means corpse or lifeless. It means somebody characterized by a complete indifference to God, completely lacking in spiritual life and vigor. Or to use Paul's words in Romans 6, we're slaves to sin, we're dead in sin. The Bible says in Romans 6, 16 and 17, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of right obedience, which leads to righteousness. So we believe that we are dead in sin. We're enslaved to sin. Uh, we believe that man before the fall in the garden had freedom and power of will to do what is good and pleasing to God. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 29 that, uh, See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes or many devices. So before the fall, we were created morally upright. We had the ability, or Adam and Eve had the ability, the freedom to choose what was good and pleasing and to choose for God. But the problem is, after the fall, Man in the garden lost all ability to freely choose for spiritual good or for his salvation. Now, the Bible says in uh, Genesis 3, talking about the man, the woman, in verses 6 and 7, they saw the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was to be desired, desired to make one wise. She, being Eve, took of its fruit and she ate of it, and she gave it to her husband with her, and he ate, and the moment they ate, their eyes were opened. Okay, And both of them knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and so on. So all of a sudden their eyes are open and for the first time in human existence, man and woman felt shame. Okay, There was a shame there. And the first thing they did, and I find this amazing, the first thing they did was not cry out to God for help and salvation, not cry and plead with him for forgiveness. The first thing they do is they cover themselves and they separate themselves. Man and woman take a step back because now all of a sudden they're hiding themselves, not just from God, but from each other. Okay, So they now lost that, that ability to choose for good. Their eyes are open. They see their nakedness. Uh, we believe... And from this corrupted state, we're totally unable to do good. We are made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to evil. We all commit sin, transgression, and iniquity. The Bible says in Titus 1.15, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. In other words, our whole nature now is totally inclined towards Evil and good and not good, sorry. Romans 3, 10 and 12 and verse 18 says this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So no matter how good you think you are, you don't get around that verse. No one, not one. In fact, the end of the whole passage in verse 18, one of the most chilling statements, he says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. They don't care about God. People say sometimes you talk about 
predestination and election and these really difficult topics. You're going to make the unbelievers so, they're going to make feel terrible. No, you won't. The fact is, they don't care. A dead person has absolutely no interest and no desire in anything being done to them. They're dead. They don't feel it. They don't understand it. There's no regard whatsoever. And what happens is that the next great statement comes in. In verse 3, he says, in Ephesians 2, verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And I think I told you when we were going through Ephesians, that idea in that verse is there that left to our own natural course, we were going straight towards God's wrath. Nobody can, no matter how good, much good or good they think they're doing, can get away from that. Everybody inevitably goes back and they wind up facing God's wrath sooner or later, left entirely to themselves. Man left to himself is on a natural course, unable to change it himself to face God's wrath. He's on a course that leads inevitably and invariably to his judgment before God. But man clearly has some element of choice. We'd all say that, wouldn't you? Uh, I, I was talking to a few people this afternoon about this whole idea about John Piper and how he picked up a pencil and he was in Wheaton College and he was learning all this and he was just fighting against it. And he went up to his prof and he said, look, he goes, I dropped it. See, I can do it. I can drop it. And prove him point, yeah, but gravity pulled it down. So you just oh, you let go. But the idea that we have some choice and we do. Man's bondage or slavery to sin doesn't mean he doesn't have any choice or any freedom. It means that the inevitable ultimate outcome of all of his actions will land him in judgment before God. Uh, look at what Paul says in the passage about the choices we make. He says in verse uh, 2 there, he says, In which you once walked following the course of this world. Now, following implies something, right? It doesn't say in which you once were dragged behind the course of this world. He doesn't say in which you once walked compelled against your will to follow the course of this world. He says in which, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works, the sons of disobedience. Meaning what? There's a choice that they exerted. They had the option for good or evil, and they chose evil. Every time you say, but yeah, but just time out. What about the the in, in America? They have the proverbial Boy Scout that helps a little old lady across the street. I mean, surely that's a good deed. We look at it and go, that's a good deed. Yeah, little Boy Scout fellow gets his little badge. Well, here's the problem. When we choose those things, we do not choose them as unbelievers with a desire to glorify God. Little Boy Scout fellow, what's he doing? What's his goal with that healthy little old lady across the street? <laughs> what's going to happen? His badge, yeah. I'm looking for my badge. Who's he working for? Himself, exactly, yeah. His, even what he decides or what the world perceives as something good or something admirable, if you go back to its root cause, its root motivation, Sooner or later, you come back to one thing. He's not doing it out of faith in God, and he's not doing it to glorify God. In fact, he's doing it to glorify himself because it gets across the far street, and provided the little lady doesn't trip and fall flat in her face halfway over, she'll maybe give her something, and either way, he gets his badge, and so he's all good. So even the good that we do, we do it for the wrong motives. So we're slaves to sin, and yes, we make choices, 
but all of those choices are driven by a nature that only has interest in self and not God. And as we know already, we were designed and created to glorify God above everything else. And if we fail or if we refuse to carry out that design purpose, we're sinning. That's why the Bible says, whatever is not of faith is sin. So whatever is not done out of a motive to please God and in and trust of God inevitably becomes sin. It is sin. We believe that man cannot savingly convert himself. And this is where a lot of people get really grumpy. Wait a minute. I came to God. In fact, Nelson, you stand up there and you preach, repent, and believe. How can you possibly preach, repent, and believe if nobody can savingly convert themselves? Well, there's a good answer for that, and we'll get there. We believe that man cannot savingly convert himself to God. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him in. And people have said, Oh, yes, you see, God woos. You know, He pulls out his violin, he plays a love song, and he woos the person to come closer. You know the word draw there? There's the same word used when Paul was in the arena and all the Jews are getting mad at him, and they're throwing up dust, and they're going to come and grab him. And the Bible says the Romans seized Paul and compelled him to leave. The word compel is the exact same word for draw. It's like they over, it's like a bucket of water in a well. You drop the bucket in, and the water goes in the bucket, and the bucket's pulled up, and all the water that's in it is just pulled up with it. It's the same idea. So no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him, but the idea is compels him, brings him in. John 6, 65, Jesus, the same passage saying, um, he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And those are difficult statements, right? But here's the thing, we, 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 stand, we stand here and go, well, then how can anybody be possibly saved? How is it that we have any hope whatsoever of coming to know Christ? And the wonderful news, who here likes Martin Lloyd-Jones besides me? You, right on, fuel you. Go online, find mljtrust.com, look up Ephesians sermons and find the one. I, he only preached 249 sermons on Ephesians. I preached 54 and got a little bit of from people about preaching too long on Ephesians. He preached, what's that, uh, five times? what I preached, in sermon, whatever it is, on Ephesians 2 and verse 4, he preaches a fantastic sermon on two words, but God. And that's the next great statement. But God made us alive. In Titus 3, verse 3, the Bible says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That was our sinful condition. And then Titus says, but, or Paul says to Titus, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, God saved us. He didn't just make it possible, he affected the entire thing. God saved us by the what they call the effectual or powerful calling us from death to life. Remember the story of uh, Jesus and Lazarus? Lazarus standing outside the tomb and Jesus lifts up his voice 
And we give thanks. He didn't just say, come forth. Why? Because everybody would have come barreling out of the tombs. So he specifically defined it. Lazarus, come forth. And I love the, the way this, the, the, the verses carry out. And he came out still wrapped in the grave clothes. I don't know if he did the Tim Conway walk or something, but somehow he got himself out and he was all wrapped up in the, in the clothes of death. And they unwrapped him and they set him free. Just as surely as Lazarus was called from the grave to life by the voice of God, so God imparts the power for us to obey. So when God calls us to believe, that call imparts the power, the ability to obey. Okay, the Bible says, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, the Bible says, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this belief in the truth, He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. How does God do that? I mean, how does He reach through time and space spiritually to call us to life? The means and the power by which God calls us from death to life is the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Love those two going together. These work together as the gospel is preached to bring us into the grace of God and salvation from sin. The Bible says, one of my favorite passages, I have lots of favorite passages, Romans 10, 14 to 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Why is it we preach the gospel? Why is it we go into Noble Park and do evangelism and hand out gospel tracts? Why does Steve do his gospel barbecue things and get people in to hear the gospel message? Because it's in the proclaiming of that message, God uses the power of the gospel spoken to men to call them from death to life. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God chose us as the first fruits. I think I read this already, didn't I? Yeah, through, thank, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God works by the power of the Holy Spirit to open our spiritual eyes, the eyes of our hearts, to see the truth of the gospel and believe the message. Uh, Acts 16, 14, Uh, the Bible says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Listen to this. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. How does he do it? He reaches down and he opens the heart. Uh, Jonathan Edwards has a great statement. He said that uh, God changes the inclinations of man to be inclined towards God. I told you before, uh, my own testimony, uh, sitting in a camp bunk, I didn't want anything to do with the gospel. It got in the way of you know playing footy and hockey and all those other fun things in Canada as a young boy. And I heard the gospel. I heard it so many times. I could tell you the gospel without even knowing that I wasn't saved. And all of a sudden, hearing it again, sitting in a bunk, little thing inside of me, and I wanted it. There was was this urge inside me. The Bible says that God works in us to take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. 
I think the idea there is a living heart is a heart of flesh and a heart of stone is one that's hardened and resistant and pushes back against the gospel and God reaches down, takes the heart of stone out and embeds a brand new living beating heart that's soft and ready to hear what God would say. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God works in us to take away the heart. God works by the power of the Spirit. God also renews our wills, and by His almighty power, He sets their desire to do that which is good. So God gives us a new will, a new inclination, a new desire for the good things of God. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Uh, Moses is uh, preaching the gospel to the people of the Jews, preaching the law to the people of the Jews, and he says this, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. What is he saying? God's going to reach in and with a circumcision knife, he's going to cut off that heart, that the fleshly bit, the sinful bit, and circumcise it. It's a visual bloody picture of taking out the sinful inclinations of the heart and instead... When he does that, now they'll love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They've been commanded to do it. They've been commanded all those laws, but there has not been a work of the heart. And God must do that work in the heart so that they'll do it. Uh, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Again, two of my favorite verses. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Isn't that great? Do you think you got a desire for something good and it came from within you? It did, but God put it there. <laughs> Isn't that cool? I, it's, it's a me to me, it's just grace upon grace upon grace. Grace that he gives us a new heart. Grace that he renews our wills. Grace that he brings the gospel in however way he brings it. And grace that he works in our hearts to put both the desire for good and the doing of the good there. So which part is ours? Well, we do exercise faith, but only because God changed our heart. We do believe, but faith is a gift. We do walk by faith. We trust God. It's all of him. Jonah, uh, lying in the belly of a whale thousands of years ago in his prayer before the Lord, the last statement of his prayer, um, for salvation is of the Lord. That means it's entirely his work in us. Do we have to cooperate? Yes, we do. And that's why God changes our wills. That's why God works in us to take away that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh so that we will respond to that call. And when we hear it, the power that that call imparts to us to obey is our cooperation. Uh, I think I've told you before, uh, my friend Mark was preaching in Canada a number of years ago, and he would come in, and I, I can picture my mind's eye, sitting in a chair about four rows in the back on the middle aisle, in the church we're in, and he, I'd preach my heart out because I knew he was there. I knew he wasn't saved. His family were all praying for him, and he would sit in his chair with his head like this in his hands and watch me, and I could see the tears running down his face, running over his hands. And he, he'd get done, he'd look up at me, and he'd go, Nels, I get it. I just can't do it. 
And he was resisting for all of his will. And God's spirit was working him. And people said to me, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I said, look, he's under conviction. God is doing a work. And he has to turn and bow the knee. He has to be the one to say, I submit to God. I, I probably told you already, but we were at a camp. I was Heather and I and the boys doing a camp. And we all started praying one night down at the fireside. And we didn't know that as we were at the fireside pleading with God to save Mark, Mark was at home in his kitchen on his face before God, trusting the Lord and being saved. And he called up next morning and said, hey, you're not going to believe this. I got saved last night. And he said, we're not going to believe this either. We were praying for you that you'd get saved last night, and it all happened at the same moment. Why? God's a God of grace. It's amazing. God works in our hearts to change those inclinations. He works in our hearts both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And being made alive, there is an insatiable desire to come to Christ to drink freely. Like that change that was in me, when I, when I got it, I just had to have it. And I couldn't wait till he finished his little talk on the gospel. I just started crying out to God in my own heart, Lord, save me. By grace we are saved. The last statement in verse 8 that we'll look at. This effectual call is made by God's free and special grace alone. It is not the result of anything we have done, not by any power or goodwill of our own. 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages uh, began. Some have argued that election works like this. Jesus Christ is the one true elect person in all the world. Uh, that's, I've actually heard this argument from a, uh, from a pulpit. He is the only elect person. And he being elect, what we have to do is get ourselves into Christ, and then we're also included in the election. So he's the elect person, and by our coming to God in our own strength and steam, we are in Christ, and therefore, hey, we're elect with Jesus. There's only one problem with that. The Bible says this. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 and 31. But by his, God's, doing, you are in Christ Jesus. So how did you get into Christ? God did it. That's the only way we're saved. He's the one that does all that work. He calls us and we're saved. God makes, God must quicken us, make us alive, or regenerate us. Regenerate us. We who were dead must be made alive before we can believe or respond. And I know folks take great issue with that statement. They would say, oh, no, 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 no. We believe, and then God makes us alive. Well, there's a problem with that. Um, people, sometimes young people ask me, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm really saved or not. And I said, well, what are you wrestling with? Oh, I'm really wrestling with sin. And I said, well, here's an easy way to understand it. Lay a dead body out on the ground, and then you lie down beside the dead body. And we'll get two big rocks, like big ones. And you leave your arms on the ground, and we'll put one rock on the dead person's chest, and put one rock on your chest. Which one of you will push it off? The live one, right? Because he's alive. He knows he's got a rock on his chest. He's got a problem. He's got to deal with it. So the dead person doesn't know he has sin. He doesn't know he's got a problem. He's dead. So how is it that we can reach out to God if we're not first made alive by God? People say, well, but that takes away our whole free choice. You know, when I think about what free choice gets me, wrath, judgment, God's justice, free choice isn't really much to hang on to. 
Yes, there is a certain freedom. We can make decisions. But God must make us alive so that we can respond in faith. Now, some would say that happens simultaneously. In my friend Mark's case, I could say that one happened probably two months before the other. Every case is different. Almost certainly some of them happen almost at the same moment. Some would say immediately before. Some would say as it happens. Some would say it could happen any time before. And God then steps in once that person's been made alive. And then they hear the gospel, and you can see they're wrestling with it, and they know they're under conviction of sin. They know that God will save them. They're hearing that call, but they're pushing back. And finally, when they submit and say, you know what? I cannot resist anymore. I will take Christ because I have no other choice. I must have Christ because he's the only way I can be saved. God must quicken us, make us alive, and regenerate us before we can believe. And we who are dead must be made alive before we can believe. We are wholly passive, being dead. We're utterly spiritually insensitive to God until that regenerating action takes place. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. There's the nail in the coffin, isn't it? A natural person, an unregenerate person will say, that's nonsense. I don't want anything to do with that. And they push it away because it's, it's folly to them. But... The verse goes on, um, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Notice what he says in verse 5 of our passage. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. And in John 5, 25, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. How are they going to hear? Because God makes them alive. That's the only way. Having been made alive, we are therefore enabled to answer the call of God and to embrace the gospel of the grace of God and experience the power of God that raised Christ from the dead. Look down at your Bibles for a sec. This is, this is why I read from 119 down to verse 10. If you look, what he actually does is he sets up a, a parallel structure. In verse 20, he says he's talking about the immeasurable greatness of God's power, verse 19, toward us who believe, and so on. Then verse 20, he says that he worked in Christ. So that's the working of that immeasurable greatness of power. How did he work it out? He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's all verse 20. Look down. He talks about Christ's rule and authority and dominion and so on. And then in verse 2, he says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. He talks about that. Then he says, but God made us alive. And what did he do in verse 6? He raised us up with him. And what else did he do? He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What's the point? It's the very same omnipotent power of God that raised Jesus from the dead that also makes us alive. So think of it like this. Just as surely... As Jesus is lying in the tomb that Easter morning and God raises him from the dead, it's the exact same power at work in us, the omnipotent power of God that God exercises when he raises us from the spiritually dead and makes us alive. And doesn't it just raise us from the dead like Jesus, who is also seated at Christ, our Father's right hand, sorry, he also seats us with him. Right? So we're already seated positionally with Christ. That's the omnipotent power of God that makes us alive.
I don't know about you, but you get to this thing and you just kind of stop and go, wow, what a God we have. To think about our corrupt, sinful nature. To think about the fact of that Romans 3 passage where no one desires for God, no, not one. Our, our mouths are open tombs. There's just death inside. Our lips are lips of asps, venom, hatred, death, all of it. No fear of God before our eyes. And God in grace and in love. Look what he says. We'll finish with this in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with him. And he just jumps in. By grace, you have been saved. You've got mercy, love, and grace. God loved us even when we were dead in trespasses, even In other words, when we were actively antagonistic to God, we hated Him. We wanted nothing to do with Him. There was nothing in us that God desired. There was nothing that was desirable. There was nothing that was redeemable. We can look at Brian and say, well, Brian is a great guy. He does this, that, and the other thing, and not good enough. It doesn't matter. And Brian's like everyone, the rest of us. None of us are good enough. There's no reason whatsoever for God to do anything in love. And this is love. Love drove him, and love was the cause of that mercy. And because of grace, we're saved. What an amazing salvation we have. Hey, beloved? It's, I, it just it staggers my mind. I think I've mentioned before, the more I study the attributes of God, the more I study the, the theology and the doctrines of salvation, I just am blown away again and again and again. He saved me. It ought to take our breaths away. Uh, I think I might have told you the story. Uh, Paul Washer, when he first came to know the Lord, he was he was a, a college a legal student, law student, and he was known to be one of the most one of the worst liars, drunkard, horrible person. People, the guy that witnessed to him was so afraid. It took him hours to suck up the courage to finally go up to Paul Washer's door at one o'clock in the morning and knock on the door. And he said, God has laid on my heart to come and tell you the gospel. And Paul only took his head off. And he invited him in and sat down. And they talked until dawn. And he said he wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with this. A few days later, someone invited him to go to a party to get, to get drunk. And uh, he said he'd been wrestling for days. And he finally said, no, I'm not coming. And uh, they said, why not? I mean, you're Paul. You always drink like that. And he just said, I'm not coming because I'm a Christian. He said before he even knew what he was saying, the words were coming out of his mouth. And his friends looked at him and thought, there's an all-new low, Paul, that you would even sink to mocking Christianity by saying that you're a Christian. And he said the power of the gospel was so impactful that the next day they found him out on the college footy field, and he was standing, he had a box of tracks, and he was crying his eyes out, and he was putting tracts in people's hands, and all he kept saying was, don't you get it? He died. He died for me. He died. He died for me. And he kept putting tracts out. They thought he'd lost his mind. They actually thought he'd gone insane. He was so overwhelmed by the grace of God. And you can see it as Paul writes that passage. He doesn't quite finish his thoughts. He just jumps in. By grace we're saved. The love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God that saved us. Yeah, I want us as a church to really understand 
thoroughly what we believe about salvation, but not just to know it here. Because theology that doesn't lead to doxology is a problem. It ought to lead us to to lift up our hearts in worship. Not just the singing kind of worship, but the living, acting kind of worship. We walk out into that world and live for Christ every day. Amen? Questions or comments before we wrap it up? We'll go up today. I know there's food, so you don't have to. It's all right. All right, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. I told you the story before about the little boy goes and helps the mason build a stone wall. Little tiny kid, you know, maybe three, four years old. And the mason invites him to help to build the stone wall. And the little boy comes there and the, and the mason says, will you pick up that hammer? Well, the hammer weighs about four pounds. And the little boy he can't even lift it off the, the bench. So the mason comes up, puts his hand around the little boy's hand, and he, and he picks up the hammer with the little boy. And he says, will you pick up the chisel? The little boy he can't even lift the chisel. So the mason puts his hand around the little boy's hand. They pick up the chisel. He says, well, let's cut the stone together. And the little boy's hands are inside the big burly mason's hands. And they begin to work together cutting the stone. At the end of the day, the little boy goes home. He's so thrilled and so excited. He says, I built a wall today out of stone. Right? And, of course, his mother just laughs at him. But you get the point. We are privileged. I love the idea that God doesn't need us to do his work. But praise God, he delights he delights to let us help. And like that, that burly mason who had a, just a joy of working with the little boy for that, those hours and seeing the little boy's joy and working with the mason to do that work, that's what our Father to heaven does. In joy, he invites us to be a part of that work, to lift up our voices and preach the gospel, to go out into the streets of Noble Park and share the gospel. Does he need us? No but he delights to use us. There's another, another answer to that question too. And it's, it's delight, absolutely, but it's also obedience, right? Jesus' great commission, go into all the world and make disciples. What are we going to do, die and save them? No, that's been done, praise God. But we, in obedience, take the word of the gospel and we share it. I mentioned before, and, and you, know, you think about a piece of paper with a gospel track message on it. What could that possibly do? But God in his infinite wisdom and his sovereign grace takes words on a page like these words on a page and he puts them into someone's hand and they read that and God affects a transaction, saves that person, changes them from death to life. Amazing grace, an amazing God we have. Yeah. Let's pray and we'll... Sorry. Yes, I do. 
<laughs> That's right. Amen. Mm. Uh, let's give thanks. Loving Heavenly Father, we come before you again. And Father, when we stop to consider what you do to save us. And Father, those words of Paul, we were by nature children of wrath. Left to ourselves, we face the inevitable and inescapable wrath of an almighty, holy, righteous God. But Father, when we also realize that you, being rich in mercy, driven by the great love with which you loved us, you made us alive. You reached down into our hearts and you inclined our hearts towards you. You drew us. And Father, you renewed our wills and put within us the will both to do, to will and to do for your good pleasure. Father, we are amazed and we're stunned. And Father, I look at my own life and I think, why would you save a wretch like me? It's grace. And Father, the kindness of our God, it ought to stop us and shake us to the core. Father, may we be so overwhelmed with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, the immense love of Christ. Father, we were thinking this morning about spending the rest of our lives as it were, trying to get our arms around the love of God. Its height is so high, we can never see the top of it. Its width is so broad, we can never see the end of it. Its depth is so great, it cannot be plumbed. And Father, may we be like Paul said in that prayer in Ephesians, that we might know the love of Christ. Father, we ask you these things. We plead with you, O God. We give you thanks, O God, for the work that you have done and are doing in us. Father, we pray that you would have freedom in our lives, that we would submit our lives wholly to the skillful hands of Almighty God to take us and make us into Christ's image. Father, do the work in us this day and this week that you want to do to make us like Jesus. Father, we ask you these things. We give you thanks, O oh God, for your greatness of your love. We thank you, O oh God, for this day, a day we can spend together in worship and in fellowship and enjoying one another's company, but also in learning and discovering something new and something amazing about you and what you have done that must cause us to worship. Father, we thank you for each other. We thank you for this church. We thank you, O oh God, for the grace that has been poured out in each of our lives to bring us on that pathway from death to life. And Father, we thank you that we are a part of a body together here. Lord, for those who are thinking about being baptized in a few weeks and thinking about membership, Father, we pray for them that you'd encourage their hearts, strengthen their resolve. Father, give them clarity if they have questions or concerns. Father, we pray that they would raise them, that we might meet them. And Father, we ask you for a great blessing in this church. Lord, we give you thanks again, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.